Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Well, few cinematic uh, moments are more iconic and more misquoted, actually, than the conversation between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker at the end of Star Wars uh, Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, in which uh, Vader reveals what really happened to Luke's father. He said, I didn't kill him. I am your father. We all remember that. Moment. Well, that may be the only way in which Jesus is like Darth Vader, but it is true nevertheless, as we'll see this morning, that they are both very unexpected fathers. So much so in Jesus' case that some skeptics have even wondered if, uh, speaking of misquoting, if the, the prophet Isaiah is guilty of misquoting God's revelation to him when Isaiah identifies this Messiah as everlasting father, in our text for this morning, and uh, I do want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Lily Stewart for sharing her artistic gifts and uh, spin on uh, this name for Jesus with us. But we have been unpacking this text, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this single verse, um, for two weeks already, mining it for uh, what it reveals to us about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. And if you've been with us, you'll remember in week one, Isaiah prophesied that he would be a wonderful counselor, that Jesus would be full of wisdom and wonders, miracles. And then last week, uh, Pastor Thad uh, opened the word for us, showed us that Jesus would be mighty God, that he would be God in the flesh, and as such, he would be strong and sovereign. But now we come to Isaiah's third name, and most perplexing name of all, his names for the Messiah, that he will be our everlasting father. And at first glance, this title seems to rule Jesus out as a messianic candidate and contender because we know Jesus was born, right? Isn't that the whole point of Christmas? Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ was born. How can Jesus be everlasting if he was born at a distinct time and place in history? And so some have concluded wrongly, like uh, the fourth century heretic Arius, that uh, Jesus was not eternal. Arius forgot to read John chapter 1, that we are going to read in just a moment, that identifies Jesus as God's eternal pre-incarnate, present all the way back At the beginning of creation, before creation, God's word who became flesh, who became human for us. But the second half of Isaiah's title here seems even more problematic theologically, this idea that Jesus is father. And now the heresies start flooding in because there's the Da Vinci Code heresy, that maybe Jesus literally fathered a child with Mary Magdalene, this secret royal bloodline passed down through the ages. That one is just silly, but there are other more popular uh, predominant heresies like the oneness heresy, the idea that God is not Trinity, God is not three in one, but rather just one. 
This is also goes by the name of modalism <clears throat> because it posits that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different modes or forms that the one true God can take at any given time, but never at the same time. <clears throat> so it would be fun to hear a modalist uh, explain Jesus' baptism uh, when the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus the Son, while God the Father simultaneously declares, this is my beloved Son. God must have been doing an awful lot of shape-shifting that day. But we can poke fun, but there is a reason why Isaiah 9-6 is every modalist's favorite verse of the Bible. Isn't Isaiah confusing Jesus here, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, with God, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, when he calls him everlasting Father? How do we make sense of it? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning there are not one, but actually two possible ways that we can make sense of this title for Jesus. Both are valid. Both have been suggested for Centuries now by orthodox interpreters of scripture, orthodox means right doctrine, it's the opposite of heresy. We want an orthodox view of, of Jesus this morning. But moreover, both of these interpretations reveal something vitally true about Jesus' character and his calling, who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us in his time on earth. And we're going to spend the majority of our time on interpretation number one of this title for Jesus because it's the one the majority of the commentators favor, but uh, I, I actually love and appreciate them both the more I've studied this week, and I can just tell you interpretation number two at the end is just going to blow your socks off, so this way <clears throat> we are going to be bouncing around a lot of different rich biblical texts this morning, another topical message in this particular series. But I did try and find just one key passage per main point here to help illuminate each of these two interpretations of Jesus' everlasting fatherhood for us. And so we're going to start, as we have every week, with Isaiah 9-6 again, reminding ourselves of Isaiah's prophecy. But then we're going to consider Exodus 34 verses 4 through 7, and what it tells us about fatherhood before we turn lastly to look at John chapter 1 and what it reveals about Jesus's paternity in particular. So I would invite you to stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Again, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, translations, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Exodus 34, 4 through 7, and John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Exodus 34. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Lastly, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God this is the word of God let's pray father we thank you again this morning for your word for the light that it is to us show us your way and the truth in dark fallen world God, we thank you for the light of your son Jesus your word made flesh the true light which brings life to all who would receive him Jesus even as we study your word and your fatherhood this morning would you deepen our love our affection our devotion for you because we know it is only because you have first loved us that we can love you in return as our Father. Would you be glorified as we grow in our gratitude and appreciation, worship and honor of you and all that you are and have done for us this morning. Jesus, our everlasting Father, in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> What does it mean to call Jesus our everlasting Father? Well, for starters, interpretation number one, it means that Jesus is perpetually paternal toward us. And even more than that, Jesus really is our forever Father. This is what the Hebrew, everlasting Father, means in one sense. How so? How is Jesus... Our forever Father. If God the Father is, well, Father, Jesus is the Son, how is he also Father? Well, if you stop and think about it for just another three seconds, we'll realize that those familial descriptors for God and Jesus are pointing us to their relationship to one another, right? Jesus, when we call Jesus the Son, whose Son is he? It's not our Son, he's God's Son, right? And so it's not a contradiction at all to call Jesus both 
a son, namely the son of God the Father, and also to call him our everlasting father. It's like that riddle, you know, two, two fathers and two sons went fishing, and each of them caught one fish, uh, but they only caught exactly three fish. How is it possible? Well, because it was a fishing trip with me and Bo and Bill, right? I am both a father and a son. I'm a father to Bo. I'm a son to Bill. So there's only three of us in the boat. It's the same idea here. Jesus is father and son. Someone might say, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is our father, then does that mean that God the Father is not also our father? Didn't Jesus himself teach us to pray, our father who art in heaven? We can resolve that as well. We all have multiple fathers, don't we? We all have at least two. You've got a biological earthly father and you've got a spiritual father, as we're going to be talking about this morning. Some of you have three. My other son, Elijah, has a biological father. He's got an adopted earthly father and he's got a heavenly father as well. So why not throw a second spiritual father in the mix? Jesus as well. We need all the parenting we can get. Amen. Praise God, Jesus is also our Father. Now, it may feel awkward calling him that at first because we're so used to thinking about God the Father as our Father, and therefore Jesus as his Son. We may be more prone to think of Jesus as our elder brother and get ready for it. In fact, he is. He is also that. The Bible also describes him as our brother. Mark 3.35, Romans 8.29, Hebrews 2.11, and verse 17 all call Jesus our brother. So four times he's called brother. Two times in scripture he's called our father. Now it's starting to sound like an episode of Jerry Springer. He's both our our brother and our father. But it's true. And I think the reason that, you know, there's only four references to his his brotherhood, two to his fatherhood, Jesus, uh, in scripture, and that scripture doesn't emphasize more frequently all of this, is God knew how confusing it was going to be for our little pea brains, right? God knew there would already be enough folks slipping away into heresies like like modalism with only two references in the Bible to Jesus as as Father. As I said, other than Isaiah 9-6, the only other place in Scripture where Jesus is explicitly identified as our Father is actually the very end of the Bible. In Revelation 21, verse 7, we read, He who is seated on the throne... And we know from chapter 4 of Revelation, that's Jesus. He's he's the one on the throne. Says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we know from chapter 1 of Revelation, that's also Jesus. So it's Jesus talking, and here's what he says. He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. So to all who conquer sin and hell and death by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, Jesus promises to be our God and to be our Father. That's a beautiful promise, even if we do only find it twice in Scripture. Now, all of this begs perhaps an even deeper question for us this morning. What does it even mean to be a father? In a society in which words like man and woman seem to be losing more and more meaning each passing day, perhaps you've seen Matt Walsh's telling and terrifying documentary, What is a Woman? How much more so do words like mother and father then lose their meaning? 
but we can make this even more personal this morning in a world where so few of our fathers have actually stepped up and been fathers to us. How can we possibly understand what it means, what it's supposed to mean to be a father? Does it really just mean contributing a sperm to fertilize an egg? Is that some totality of fatherhood, of being a father? By that definition, my son, Elijah's biological father, who he's never even met, is more of a father to him than I have been for three years now, caring for him. Is that true? We know at a minimum that God is our father in the sense of having given birth to us. Malachi 2.10 asks, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? But is that the only sense in which God is our Father as our Creator, giving birth to us? Is God the deadbeat dad of deism who cared just enough to create us and then stepped away and can't be troubled to actually parent us, to to be concerned with our problems? Is that who God is? Some of us have been kept our distance, kept God at an arm's length for many years because we grew up in church hearing about God being our father and then we went home and we suffered the failed fathering of our earthly dads and we concluded if that's what it means to be a father, this earthly picture that I see day in and day out, week in and week out, whenever dad decides to get off the couch, come home from work and and actually attempt to be a dad, if that's what it means to be a dad, I'm not interested in the second one. One's enough. Instead of realizing our need for a father, and if, if your earthly one was that bad, then how much more do you need a perfect heavenly one? And just as with any concept that we might consider man, woman, marriage, love, sin, mother, father. We can't look around us to the world to get our definition of what it actually means. We have to look at God's unchanging word. How does God define fatherhood? God does so in his word by pointing us to himself. He says, you want to know what a father is supposed to look like? Look at me. And of all the the many passages we could turn to here, for a snapshot of God's fathering, I think maybe the best of all is Exodus chapter 34 that we read a moment ago, especially given the context. This is basically Israel's adoption ceremony as God's children when he's telling them, this is what it's going to mean for me to be your father. Now, I announced last week at our annual meeting that we're actually going to be spending much of the new year, God willing, Uh, walking through the book of Exodus together. And so I don't want to spoil too much of it this morning, but here is a quick context for you for this passage. Let's go all the way back. God fathered Adam and Eve, way back in Genesis 1 and 2. But by chapter 3, they were already ready to run away from home, metaphorically speaking. They rejected God as their father. And so God called a man, Abraham, because God is... A faithful father. He doesn't give up. And so he, 
He didn't give up on us, on humanity. He called a man, Abraham, and he promised to be his father and to make him the father of a multitude. And he did it, God did it, while Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, were sojourning in Egypt. God multiplied them to the point that the Egyptian pharaoh down there began fearing how numerous the Israelites were becoming. He started killing them and enslaving them. And so God's people, the Israelites, cried out to him, God, aren't you our father Save us. Do something. Help us. And as a good father, God heard their cries. And God called a man, Moses, to go to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, Exodus 4.22 now, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He did not listen. And so God supernaturally intervened as a father to punish his enemies and deliver his children. And as soon as the Israelites are out of Egypt, God told them in Exodus 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. In other words, I am adopting you. But if you're going to be part of my family, you need to start acting like it. And then the very next chapter, chapter 20, God gives them the family rules. This is what it means to be a part of the family, the family guidelines, expectations, the Ten Commandments. And while he was in the process of explaining the, the, the you know, family meeting, family rules to them, the Israelites were already at the foot of the mountain breaking the top three commandments. And so Moses gets mad at them. He throws the tablets down. He breaks them. That's a symbol of what God's children have done in breaking his commands. But again, God is a faithful father, and he doesn't give up on his children. He sits them down again. Okay, let's try again. He redictates his commandments once again. But this time in verse 5, God personally descended, we hear. The Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with Moses there and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. God reveals to Moses in perhaps the clearest terms in all the Old Testament before he's visible in the person of Jesus who God is, God's own nature, his very character. If you want to know who God is, pre-Jesus, you got to go to Exodus 34. It says God in his own words, revealing himself to his people. And he reveals here not only what it means that he is our God, but he reveals what it means that he is our Father. I see seven attributes of God's paternity revealed here in Israel's adoption ceremony. This is what it means that I'm your father, you're my children. First, he is merciful. We read the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. Now, mercy is not getting what you deserve in a good way. And a good father is full of mercy. He is merciful. So when my son pees his pants, after I have encouraged him three times hey, buddy, why don't we try the potty? And he tells me I don't need to go. And I remind him multiple times, okay, well, then you, you, just, you need to tell me when you feel it coming up before you go so I can help you. And he still pees his pants. What he deserves is to walk around the rest of the afternoon in wet, uncomfortable, smelly underwear, right, to teach him a lesson. Maybe next time he'll listen to Dad and obey but a merciful father doesn't give him what he deserves. 
merciful father lovingly corrects, but then wipes his son down and changes his underwear anyway. And see, the reason I can use this example, they say, be careful, you know, using personal examples, examples and sermon illustrations. You don't want to make yourself look like the, the hero. I can assure you, I was ready to leave him in the pee pants this week. Fortunately for my kids, they have a merciful mother who intervenes sometimes. Because I am not a perfect father, but God is. And God's mercy was on display as early as the Garden of Eden. After he had warned Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge, he said, for on that day you shall surely die. Sin is disobeying God. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin, what that sin, what that disobedience deserves, earns us, rightfully, is death. And God is not a liar. And so there's a sense in which on that day, Adam and Eve really did experience death, the death of their innocence, the death of paradise, the death of eternity, as we're going to see in point number two. But in another important sense, they didn't receive the immediate, literal death, physical death they deserved. God killed an animal instead. We hear, this is the very first sacrifice in human history. God kills an animal to spiritually cover their sins and literally cover the, their naked bodies. God was merciful toward his children. Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Exodus 34 continues, second, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. If mercy is not getting the bad thing you deserve, God's grace is getting the good thing you don't deserve. If God's mercy means that he is our protector from the evils that we rightfully deserve, then God's grace means he is also our provider of the good gifts we don't deserve but so desperately need. Gifts like Life, like the air in your lungs right now. Once again, God's grace started in the garden when he made us from the dust and he breathed life into our bones. Actually, it started even before that on day one of creation when he said, let there be light. And God has been giving us good, undeserved gifts ever since. He is so gracious. Thirdly, a good father is slow to anger with his children. He is patient. My daughter this week, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm getting all my kids this, this sermon. Uh, Ellery told me uh, the score of one of the World Cup games that she knew I had recorded and was excited to watch. She didn't want to watch it. She wanted to play something else. And so she said, well, I, she just told me the score. Ruined the game for me. Not cool, right? Just a jerk thing to do. She's six years old. Uh, but you would have thought that she had burned the house down the way I reacted. You would have thought that she was Harry Kane and she had missed the penalty kick to put our team out of, out of the tournament. I was not slow to anger with her. But God is. God is patient with us, with his children. Remember when God said... If you obey me, I will be your father and I will bless you. Well, God had also warned them at the same time. Deuteronomy 28, he said, If you won't obey me, I will punish you because God is just and he disciplines us for our good. We're going to come to that in point number seven. But, but he said, I'm going to punish you if you don't obey me. I will send you out of the promised land into exile. 
Okay, so God warned them of that in the 15th century BC. That's when he said this to Moses, Deuteronomy 28. Does anyone remember when God made good on that promise to punish them? His ominous promise if they disobeyed him. It was in the 6th century BC in the Babylonian captivity. 900 years. Like three Americas. 900 years God waited. Such is his patience, his slowness to anger with his children in spite of our sin. Fourth, a good father abounds. He's patient because he abounds in steadfast love. He is loving. Once again, we can almost hear the Father's love for us in his voice as far back even as Genesis 1 when God said, it's good, it's good, it's good. About every other day of creation, the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, the animals, the plants, all of it is good. But it wasn't until that sixth day after he created us that God finally declared it is very good, holy good. It's all good now. It's complete because God had set his special personal love on humanity above everything else in creation. Jeremiah 31 3 says God has loved us with an everlasting love. If he didn't love us, our sin wouldn't break his heart so much. Just listen to how God describes his love for his people despite their sin in the book of Hosea. You can hear his heart here for us. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, false gods, and burning offerings to idols. He says, yet it was I who taught them to walk. It was I who took them up by their arms when they didn't know how to walk, and I healed them. He says, I taught you to ride your bike, and when you crashed it, I picked you up, and I, and I, I kissed and, and put you know, ointment and a bandit on your skin knee. That was me, Yahweh, not Baal. I led you with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I bent down to them and fed them. But my people are bent on turning away from me. He says, but, but, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's a nickname for Israel. He says, e even despite your, your sinning, your rebellion, you're constantly running away from home, how can, I, how can I let you go? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, and I will not come in wrath. God says, I am God and not a man. And you, you would think that means he's holy. Uh-oh, we're really in trouble now. But he says, no, 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 I'm not like men. Any human father would have given up on y'all a long time ago, like 900 years ago. But I'm not like your human dads. I'm, I'm, I, I love you with an everlasting love, a steadfast, never-ending, unconditional love. After 900 years of disobedience, you still haven't exhausted the depths of my mercy and love for you. Because God's love is related, number five, to his faithfulness. 
A good father is faithful. He is devoted. He is loyal. Through thick and thin, in the good times and the bad, a good father will be there for you. Psalm 36, 5 declares, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. It's infinite. It's everlasting. King David said in Psalm 27, Even my own father and mother, my earthly parents, who love me more than anyone in the world, they've forsaken me. They've let me down. He says, But the Lord will take me in. I saw a meme on Facebook last week, put it this way. Three things God promises he'll never do. He's never going to give you up. He's never going to let you down. And he's never going to run around and desert you. God is the OG Rick Roller because he's faithful. That's who he is for you. And because he's faithful, number six, he is also forgiving. God says, I Keep my steadfast love towards you. How so? How is God able to keep this kind of love in spite of our constantly disobeying, rebelling against him? It's verse 7, because of his forgiveness. By forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's like he just uses every Hebrew word there is for sin to emphasize just how sinful we are because it makes God's forgiveness of our sin that much more amazing. As the psalmist asked, if you, O Lord, should count iniquities, who could stand? God, God, if you kept a record of wrongs and counted them against us, none of us could even stand in your presence, much less remain your beloved children. But then he reminds us of this good news, but with you there is forgiveness, and God will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130. Lastly, number seven, a good father is patient and merciful, but he's also just. He is fair. He will by no means clear the guilty, just turn a blind eye to sin. And that means when necessary, a good father will discipline you for your good. Proverbs 3.12 assures us that the Lord disciplines him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This is part of what it means for God to love and delight in you, is to discipline you. It's not loving for me as a father to watch my son hit my daughter and to just turn a blind eye, go back to watching the game. My love for him, not just for her, my love for him compels me to want the best for him. And I know that it's not best for him growing up thinking it's okay to hit girls. And so a good father will hate the sin that he sees in his child. And he will do everything in his power to try and discipline that sin out of him. So to summarize, what does it mean to be a father? A father is a merciful protector, a gracious provider, he is patiently slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful, he is forgiving, but he is fair in his discipline. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly the God that we have. We have a perfect heavenly Father. So, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? Because that's who the prophecy is about, right? 
Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, who would be God's son, for unto us a son is given, would also be a father. He would be our everlasting father. I think what he's essentially saying is, like father, like son. Right? The apple doesn't fall, fall too far from the tree. And in Jesus' case, the apple is the tree. Jesus said so in John 10, 30. He said, I and the Father are one. He says, when, when you see the apple, you've seen the tree. When his disciple Philip asked in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. Jesus replied, Philip, have I been with you for so long and you still don't even know me? It's like, if you don't know this about me, you don't even know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says, Philip, you want to see God the Father? You're looking at him. Elsewhere, the Bible says Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, Hebrews 1. Jesus is the image, the reflection of the invisible God, Colossians 1. No one has ever seen God, the Father, but Jesus has made him known to us. He is the perfect manifestation of God the Father, John 1. And so if God is perfect in his paternity toward us, then we should expect the exact same of his son, Jesus. And that's exactly what we got in our father, Jesus. Jesus was merciful, perfectly merciful. He was constantly helping hurting folks, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, welcoming the outcast, so much so it earned him the pejorative nickname, friend of sinners. Such was Jesus' mercy, undeserved mercy. Jesus was gracious. If we'd read the rest of John 1, the passage we open with, verse 16, says of Jesus, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. All of us have received. Some of us have received the special grace of eternal life, but everybody's received grace. Jesus said, look, me and God, we, we make the sun to shine on the evil and the righteous alike. I, I give air into the lungs of, of people so they can curse me. That's how, that's how gracious I am. That's how, how, how much I bless you with good gifts you don't deserve and the greatest grace of all, the best undeserved gift of all is salvation. It's eternal life. It is by grace we've been saved through faith. Not by works. It is what? A gift of God. Undeserved gift. Jesus is the gift of God. As we sang in the song this morning, fall on your knees, receive the gift of heaven. God so loved the world that he gave, he gave as a gift his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what kind of life? A lot of life, a really long life, everlasting life. Jesus is patient. Jesus is coming back to judge the world because he's just, we'll get to that, but he will right every wrong, and he will reward every right. And it's going to be a glorious day, at least for those of us who belong to him, who are his children. So what is he waiting for? Second Peter 3.9 tells us what he's waiting for. The, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is waiting for your sister-in-law. Uh, for your stepfather, 
for your coworker, for your next door neighbor to reach repentance. He wants everyone included in the family. Will we tell them? Jesus is loving. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And I guess that makes Jesus' love even greater than the greatest love because he laid down his life not for his friends but for his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5 says, yet rebels against him, children of wrath, children of our father, the devil, Ephesians 2 says, while we were yet sinners and rebels, Christ died for us. Such is his love for wayward children. Jesus is faithful. It's his name. In Revelation 19.11, Jesus is called, John gets a vision of one seated on a white horse whose name is faithful. It's Jesus just like Isaiah had foretold of the Messiah, faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins, Isaiah 11. Jesus was faithful to his father, Hebrews 3.6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, he says, and he's faithful to us as his children. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, even if we are faithless, even when we fail him, turn from him, run away from home again, countless times, even if we are faithless, Christ remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. It's so inherent to who he is, his nature. Again, it's his name, faithful. He's faithful to his core. It's in his very nature to be faithful to us. God is forgiving. Jesus is forgiving. Jesus is not just forgiving. He is himself our forgiveness. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And so Ephesians 4, 32 commands us, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. 1 John 2, 2 calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins. That means he is our forgiveness. Jesus was God's once and for all time atoning sacrifice that purchased our everlasting forgiveness. He is forgiveness incarnate. And lastly, Jesus is just. He is patient. He is merciful. He is loving. But he's also just. And he will one day return to judge the living and the dead, to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the saved from the damned. The children of Jesus from the children of wrath, the devil. Jesus is our merciful, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, fair. And finally, let's bring it back to Isaiah and his adjective, everlasting father. Here's the thing. Even the best earthly father out there is not only going to fail you, is going to forsake you, as David said in Psalm 27, but he, he will eventually leave you. Even the best father of, of the person in this room, or the best father, he'll leave you. He's a temporary father. Not so with Jesus. Just like God the Father, Jesus also promised never to leave us. He said, behold, I am with you. How long? Most of the time? Like until I go to heaven? Until you sin? And I don't want to be near you anymore? 
I'm with you always, he says. He, he told us, I'm sending a comforter, a helper to be with you, to live inside you, my very own spirit to be in you, with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is our forever father, perpetually paternal, perfectly paternal in his love toward us. Now, I could just end right there, and I think you would have gotten your money's worth this morning. I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is perpetually paternal love for us, his forever fatherhood of us. Interpretation number one, that is worth the cost of admission this morning. But it gets even better than that. Because interpretation number two, I told you, is just as valid, perhaps even more meaningful in some ways, even if I have less time to spend on it, even if fewer uh, translators, interpreters seem to favor this one. But here it is, ready? To call Jesus our everlasting Father certainly means that he is perfectly paternal toward us, like God the Father, but it also means that he is our source of salvation. He is our source of salvation. Here's why. I'm going to let Warren Wearsby explain. He, he writes, Father of eternity is a better translation of the Hebrew name here, Abiad. Abiad literally means father of eternity. Wearsby says, among the Jews, the word father means originator or source. For example, Satan is called the father, the originator of lies. He is the source of all lying. And then Wiersbe says, in other words, if you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus. He is the Father, the source of eternity. I like it. If, if, if your lamp's not plugged into the power source, you're not getting any light. Spiritually, if you're not plugged into the power source, you're not getting eternity. The great Charles Spurgeon similarly interpreted, Jesus is so surely and essentially eternal that he is here pictured as the very source and father of eternity. So consider with me quickly here at the end, just a brief history of eternity, all right? We were, nobody got that joke. Eternity's a long time. And so I have a brief history. Okay, you're, you're still awake. Good, good. Um, we were made for eternal life. Romans 5 says that death only entered the world through sin, that we were made originally in the garden to enjoy paradise with God forever. But our first father, source, originator of the flesh, the father of our, our, our fleshly nature, Adam, is the originator of sin, the source of sin and its rightful consequence, death. Eternal life interrupted. But we've never quite gotten over it, have we? Like we all experience, even, even the most avowed atheist, experience this deep, profound, unshakable longing for more. And we don't just want more of the same. We don't want just 70 or 80 more years of, of living in a, in a fallen world like this one. We want eternal life. This is what the whole book of Ecclesiastes that we studied together this fall was about. 
God has put eternity into man's heart. But for thousands of years, that was a desire unfulfilled. Until John chapter 1. When Jesus, the word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is our father, our source. He's the source of everything, John 1 says. All things were made through him. But in a unique way for us, humanity, Jesus is our source of life, our very life. In him was life, and the light, life was the light of men, of, of humanity. And what kind of life? When you plug into the power source of Jesus, what kind of life flows through the current? Whoever believes in him shall no longer perish but shall have what kind of life everlasting life the energizer bunny's got nothing on jesus he just keeps going and going and going and going everlasting life to all who received him who believed in his name jesus gave the right to become children of god jesus is our father and he is the father of eternity Eternal life. If you want anything eternal, you better go to the power source. You got to get it from Jesus. So I, I end this morning by asking you, have you gotten it? Have you gotten salvation? Have you gone to the source? Have you gotten eternal life this morning? My friends, we all need a father. We are all in desperate need of mercy and grace and patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness. We need discipline. But more than any of it, we need salvation. We need to be saved from our sins. We need someone who can deal with our sin problem and the death that it, occur, that it merits, deserves, and and that it occasions in our relationship with God. Sin breaks relationship with God the Father. But praise God, he has given us a source of salvation, Jesus, the Father of eternal life. Will you receive it this morning? Will you receive him this morning, the gift of heaven this Christmas?